Thank you. I'm going to kind of run the gamut of songs this morning. <laughs>
rise in body or spirit for the call to worship. Ancestors who spoke with bravest fire, lend us your senses that we may know another world is on her way, breathed into life with our participation in her creation. Forebears who led the way where there was at first no way, lend us your persistence, your temerity, your assurance that the moral arc of the universe does indeed bend toward justice. It is Sunday morning, the day we gather. Let us be thankful and full of praise to be in the company of those who came before, yet are ever in our midst, knowing that we too will someday be ancestors. Come, let us worship together. Please join in singing hymn 34, Though I May Speak with Bravest Fire.
Good morning. I'm Kristen Satterley, your worship leader this morning, and I'm so glad you are here in this beautiful community where we invite love to guide us. Whoever and wherever you are, in the family room or social hall or here in the sanctuary, each one of you is important and welcome and loved. In fact, take a moment to feel the love that connects us all. Notice the people near you or far away and the energy that swirls between and among us. It is good to be together. And it is also good to remember that each of us has a human body and they and our devices make small noises and that is just fine. Families with small folks, we've got a playground right down here for the best view in the house and a soft rug to play on. There's also an activity table in the back and a family room across the hall for whatever level of activity you would like. Wherever you want to be, we are happy you are with us today. Welcome to all on this beautiful morning. human bodies doing this morning so far? <laughs> Rocking the fall. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it feels good out there, right? Nice coolness to the air, sky full of balloons, traffic, just so easy everywhere you go. <laughs> Nothing to stress out about at all this week, is there? Why don't you take a moment to breathe and settle in. The only thing you have to contend with right now is your busy, busy mind. So how about taking a few breaths? See if there's any tension you can let out of your body. Let your mind check in with shoulders, jaw, abdomen, legs. Let yourself be held just for a little bit. We're going to continue with two minutes of meditation, a time of relative stillness, relative silence. Let any sounds you might hear just be like meditation chimes that call you to this moment. And when you notice your mind has wandered, just gently bring it back.
you a chance. The words are in the bulletin. We will never, never lose our way to the well of a memory and the power of a living flame. It will rise, it will rise again. We will never, never lose our way to the well of a memory and the power of a living flame. It will rise, it will rise again. We will never, never lose our way to the well of a memory and the power of a living flame. It will rise, it will rise again. We will never, <coughs> never lose our way well of a memory and the power of a living flame. It will rise, it will rise again. We will never, never lose our way to the well of a memory and the power of a living flame. It will rise, it will rise again. We will never, never lose our way to the well of a memory and the power of a living flame. It will rise, it will rise again. lift up some prayers in our community. I have a long, long list in my pastoral list today. Beginning with the attack on Israel. The hundreds of innocent people killed. The people being held hostage. People of all ages. The loss of life surely yet to come. Pray for peace, a peace that is more than the absence of conflict, a peace of safety and thriving and wholeness. I lift up the people of Afghanistan, the massive loss of life there due to the earthquake, and pray for peace. Peace that is more than absence of calamity. Peace of wholeness, healing, human thriving. I lift up the name of Connie Malecki, who suffered a terrible stroke a few days ago. 
and I'm very to say, sorry to say that Connie has died. Connie, longtime leader of our ESL program, active here in so many ways, a beloved friend, a beloved family member. Connie was visiting family in California when this happened, and she was able to be with her family when she died, with Greg and Leslie, Tiger Lily and Rose, all members here as well. And so we hold them in our love. We pray that Connie's passing being peace and that life perpetual shine upon her. And I pray for all of you who loved her like I did. May we be comforted in this time by our memories of her and by her lasting impact. Lift up also the name of Sharon Baton, who died this week. Sharon, a nurse, a big hugger, lovely person. We hold her husband, Jim, and her granddaughter, Kelsey, in our love, and we pray that Sharon's passing be in peace and that light perpetual shine upon her. There will be a memorial service for Sharon this Friday at 6 p.m. in the social hall, and when one is planned for Connie, I'll let you know. Lift up Carol Hobart, whose brother Ned died this week after a long illness. May peace be with him. May light perpetual shine upon him. May Carol be comforted. And I lift up Jacob Johns, the activist who was shot in Española last week by a man wearing a MAGA hat. Jacob is a UU. He's from Spokane, Washington. He's a young father. He is Native American. He was there to join his voice with other indigenous activists protesting a statue of the brutal Spanish colonizer Juan de Oñate. Tomorrow is Indigenous Peoples Day. I call on the Rio Arriba County officials and all Americans to stop celebrating domination and violence through statues and Columbus Day and instead work at last toward repair and human thriving. I know that you also have many names in your hearts. I invite you to call them to mind, all the people and places for whom you have a prayer. And I invite you to speak them aloud as the chime rings so that we can hold them with you. All of these we lift up. We lift up the unspoken prayers as well. And Wednesday will be National Coming Out Day. I just want to say a little prayer for everyone who's thinking about that. Everyone who's wondering who they are. And everyone who is coming out. A prayer of celebration for them. And I lift up Kenny Jones and Libby King, two of our members who are in Colorado right now. They're training to be facilitators of our our Whole Lives program. That's 
our Lifespan Sexuality Education Program, which affirms people of all genders and orientations. So blessings on their trip and on their learning. All of these, every one of them, and all the unspoken prayers we lift up to the great powers of healing, renewal, and celebration that we call by many names. Here is one of my favorite prayers by Starhawk. Earth Mother, Star Mother, you who are called by a thousand names, may all remember we are cells in your body and dance together. You are the grain and the loaf that sustains us each day. And as you are patient with our struggles to learn, so may we be patient with ourselves and with each other. We are radiant light and sacred dark, the balance. You are the embrace that heartens and the freedom beyond fear. Within you, we are born. We grow, live, and die. You bring us around the circle to rebirth. Within us, you dance forever. Amen. Peace be with you.
Hello. It's a different kind of story today. Genealogical research is one of my hobbies. And I often talk about the Jewish side of my family because that's how I was raised to identify. But something else I discovered on my mother's side is that I'm a Mayflower descendant. Surprise! My 12th great-grandfather is William Brewster, the spiritual leader of the group that became known as the Pilgrims. It's not that special, even though only five women survived that first year at Plymouth, there are today an estimated 35 million Mayflower descendants around the world. You might be one. The elder William Brewster was a faith leader and an influential figure, and consequently, his family members and descendants were too. His great-granddaughter, Elizabeth, married into the Gedney family, whose patriarch, John, was one of the town of Salem's founders and leading citizens. John's son, Eliezer, Elizabeth's husband, uh, is my direct ancestor. Eliezer was a shipwright and helped his brother, Bartholomew, start his professional life as a ship's carpenter. Later records show that Bartholomew was known as a physician. Then, as influential white men did, he entered public service as a town selectman. He was a member of the local militia and rose to the rank of colonel by the end of King Philip's War in 1676. That was a war between northern New England colonists and Metacom, a leader of the Wampanoag people, otherwise known as King Philip, and several other tribes. After the war, Bartholomew was awarded a great deal of Abenaki land in Maine, and that was as the result of successful military expeditions to reestablish colonial occupation there. A very full resume, but notice, no training in law. In those days, appointments to positions in various courts were awarded to influential, rich merchants and successful military men. Only three of the nine Salem witch trial judges had a degree from Harvard, which at that time was training only Puritan clergy. There were no lawyers as we know them in Massachusetts in 1692. How did Bartholomew Gedney come to be a judge during the Salem witch trials? Well, imagine yourself as a respected and upstanding citizen of a growing village, white, <laughs> known throughout the province of Massachusetts Bay, trusted by the king's representatives in government to act in the best interest of the laws of the time. You're handling criminal cases and probate and wills and then are appointed to a special court established to address the mayhem and hysteria brewing in your town among people you know of witchcraft. The king's representative, Sir William Phipps, the new governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, 
appointed Gedney as a magistrate and the first probate judge in Salem and Essex County. Gedney served on several courts and councils there, gaining experience in English common law of that time. In 1692, Governor Phipps established a court of, a court of Oyer and Terminer, which is a special court authorized to hear Oyer and determine Terminer certain cases. In this case, specifically to clear the growing backlog of accusations and arrests for witchcraft, which was approaching crisis proportions. The first legal code in New England called the Body of Liberties included witchcraft among its capital offenses, citing biblical sources for its authority. Defense lawyers and cross-examination did not exist. Most, but not all, Puritans in the 1690s believed that physical realities had spiritual causes. For example, if the crops failed, the devil may have been responsible. If you fell sick, the cause may have been the curse of a witch. It was not a stretch for people to accept spectral evidence, testimony in which witnesses claimed that the accused appeared to them and did them lasting harm in a dream or a vision. That type of evidence was allowed by William Stoughton, the man in charge of the special court. That was the primary evidence used as proof of guilt during the Salem witch trials. All the judges of that court appeared to believe it. At that time, the law assumed that the accused were guilty. The idea that one is innocent until proven guilty didn't appear until a Supreme Court decision in 1895 established that as a requirement for a fair trial. There was much controversy over the events as they were happening and much alarm at how fast the accusations were spreading. Finally, almost six months after the trials had started, Harvard president, Increase Mather, spoke against spectral evidence, stating that it were better that 10 suspected witches should escape than that one innocent person should be condemned. In response, his political partner, Governor Phipps, declared that the court he had established must be dismissed. His change of attitude may have been aided by the fact that his own wife was being questioned for witchcraft. Out of 200 accused of witchcraft, 20 people convicted by the court were executed before the court was disbanded. A new court was formed with instructions to entirely disregard spectral evidence. The Superior Court of Judicature resolved most accusations of witchcraft with acquittals. My ancestor Bartholomew Gedney continued serving on courts and in councils, even participating in one last military exercise in 1696, before dying in 1698 at the age of 57.
when we were planning the theme for this morning and Mia said, I've got a story about that. <laughs> that was so lucky. That was really interesting and well written too. Thank you, Mia. Well, most people say the trouble began in the darkest, coldest days that winter. January 1692 in what is called Salem, Massachusetts. It was, in fact, the homeland of the Pawtucket Band of the Massachusetts people, the Massachusetts people who continue to exist today. Against all odds, their ancestors survived those years and protected elements of their culture and tradition that are thousands of years old. That's the land where this story about colonists takes place. In 1692, it really hadn't been long since the invasion of that land began. There were still people alive who remembered the before time. So people lived in a time of fear and tension and violence, and it was not safe for anyone. Hunger was a looming threat each winter for the colonists, along with the challenge of trying to stay safe from the brutal cold. Illness took many lives. There were frequent border and boundary disputes, and all of this created a climate of fear and anxiety. And then to make matters worse, factions were forming in the village of Salem, and inflation was putting pressure on everyone. Finally, the colonists had brought with them from England a culture shaped by trauma and fear. It was a culture that had just come through the medieval era. In that era in Europe, which lasted from about 500 to 1500 CE, extreme violence was commonplace, especially against those whom the Catholic Church called heretics. And those included people who denied the Trinity, Jewish people, and people accused of witchcraft. In Europe, over a period of 300 years, as many as 50,000 people were executed for witchcraft. So this was the cultural context, like this is the backdrop. When nine-year-old Betty Paris and 11-year-old Abigail Williams, the children of colonists, suddenly fell ill. And not from smallpox that had sickened or killed so many others or from one of the other familiar illnesses. The girls' symptoms were strange. They made weird sounds and they hid under the furniture and clutched their heads. So when neither prayer nor medicine seemed to help, their parents assumed it must be witchcraft at work. As word got out about the girl's mysterious illness, others also began to fall ill with strange symptoms. They complained of disembodied spirits attacking them, and soon they began to call out names, saying the specters belonged to some of their neighbors, and sometimes to acquaintances or even total strangers. Anybody could be accused of witchcraft, but women who talked back to their husbands in public or who were widowed and lived alone or who worked as healers or midwives were especially targeted. With the accusations mounting, that newly appointed governor created the court Mia told you about, the court of Oyer and Terminer. On June 10th, Bridget Bishop was the first person found guilty and hanged. 18 others followed her to the gallows in the next three days. The accused and their families and ministers petitioned and wrote letters to the governor imploring him to stop. And as Mia pointed out, when the governor's own wife was accused of witchcraft as well, and under all that pressure, he finally disbanded the court. 
Over the course of that year, as many as 200 people were jailed for witchcraft, and the second court did acquit most of them. And when a few convictions remained afterward, the governor just let them go. So the witch trials had come and gone in a year, but they had a lasting impact. In 1697, so not long after, the Massachusetts General Court ordered a day of fasting and prayer in atonement for errors made by the colony, including the witchcraft trials. One judge and 12 jurors publicly apologized that day for their role. But according to the Salem Witch Museum, the other magistrates never admitted that there had been a miscarriage of justice, going to their graves believing that they had done what was best for the colony. I wonder, has anybody here ever visited the Salem Witch Museum in Salem, Massachusetts? I see a few, yeah. I have too, I've been there a couple of times. And it's in this big old Gothic building that was built in the 1840s. And the building was, it looks very church-like, and in fact it was the home of Second Unitarian Church back then. <laughs> There are some second churches, if you can believe, that's really hard to fathom out here in the West where any Unitarian church is often the first and last one for hundreds of miles. It's very optimistic that we are named First Unitarian Church, I think. So the museum has two kinds of exhibits. The first exhibit is all about the history of the Salem Witch Trials and it goes into much more detail than what we just shared. And the second exhibit is about the evolving perception of witches. Because cultures all over the world have practiced magic throughout human history. And there are also modern self-identified pagan witches who practice an earth-based spirituality here in the US. And Unitarian Universalism includes many UUs who identify this way. And in fact, they're active in leading services here. And we love it. The persecution of witches and the accusation that they harm children, cause illness, and conspire with the devil to harm society came from the medieval Catholic Church. Most people know about that, more or less. But what most people probably don't know is the very strong connection between the persecution of witches and the persecution of Jews. I first learned about this in a class on Judaism. And then a few months ago, a lecture at the Salem Witch Museum also described that relationship, the evidence of which can be found right before our eyes today. So I'll tell you what I mean. The museum's directors of education, uh, Rachel Chris Doan and Jill Christensen, described how before witchcraft became the dominant scapegoat for misfortune in Europe, it was Jews who were often said to be demonic, evil individuals who poisoned wells, spread plague, and harmed children. In anti-Semitic propaganda, Jews were portrayed with exaggerated facial features meant to make them look scary, including very large noses and women with large hairy chins. They were accused, all those things I said, of poisoning wells and spreading plague. They were accused of eating children, which in case any children are paying attention, is not true. No one does that, right? But it's really similar to what people would later say about witches, for example, in the story of Hansel and Gretel. Jews were also accused of ruining society by intermarrying. In the 13th century, Catholic authorities 
required Jewish people to wear distinctive pointy hats so that they would be easily identifiable. Anti-Semitic propaganda and art from that era also portray those pointy hats with some of them very, very closely resembling what we think of today as a witch's hat, as a costume hat. So in other words, today's stereotypical idea of witches comes from the medieval era, and that image appears to have evolved from the anti-Semitic tropes of the time. Jews and alleged witches were both depicted with big noses and pointy hats, both accused of conspiring against Christians, of causing or spreading disease, and of harming children. Both were persecuted for it. Both were the targets of witch hunts. The Witch Museum says witch hunts occur when there's a climate of fear and then something happens to escalate it, triggering people to find a scapegoat. Escalated fear and anger over the loss of World War I led to Jews being scapegoated as the reason for Germany's troubles, and six million were murdered. The attack on Pearl Harbor escalated white American spears in World War II, and Japanese Americans were scapegoated and locked up in internment camps, including my uncle, who was just an eight-year-old kid. Today, some religious and political conservatives not all, but some, are again afraid of diversity in our society and are afraid of evil forces conspiring against Christianity's stronghold, and they are scapegoating trans people, for example. They do this by saying, guess what? That these new scapegoats go against God, have a conspiracy to take over the culture, the gay agenda, want to harm children. It's a pretty familiar set of accusations. It's a classic witch hunt. When I hear a politician claim that they are the target of a witch hunt, this is the meaning of that term. The ones who say it are often the same ones who are, in fact, promoting today's witch hunts, making their complaints either incredibly ignorant or gaslighting, and certainly patently false. We are also, again, seeing a rise in anti-Semitism. We all heard that white nationalist rallying cry in Charlottesville in 2017, Jews will not replace us, right? That paranoia harkens back to that medieval accusation about Jews intermarrying. And the anti-Jewish and anti-witch and anti-gay and anti-trans accusations of being part of some big conspiracy. Those anti Semitic conspiracy accusations today also include controlling Congress and the media and Wall Street. And by the way, the money-related anti-Semitic stereotypes are deeply ironic. In the medieval era, the authorities limited what kinds of work Jews were legally allowed to do. They were limited in part to professions that the ruling classes disdained, such as tax collectors, money lenders, and other money management related jobs. And that is where that stereotype comes from. It is anti-Semitism just doubling down on itself. A year after Charlottesville, the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh was attacked. And over the last few years, other anti-Semitic incidents have sharply risen. In 2022, the Anti-Defamation League recorded 
3,697 anti-Semitic incidents, which was the highest number ever recorded in their nearly 45 years of keeping track, and the third time in four years to break a record, and it reflects the overall upward trend since 2013, when there were 751 incidents. So those include things like assault and harassment and explicitly anti-Semitic vandalism. And sometimes anti-Semitism hides in plain sight. This year, there was a Harry Potter video game released called Hogwarts Legacy, which features goblins who have big hooked noses that are obsessed with money, one of whom has a shofar, which is a traditional Jewish horn sounded during the High Holy Days, and they are, guess what, looking for children. So earlier, I shared a prayer from Starhawk with you, and Lydia shared that chant from Starhawk. Starhawk is from a Jewish family. She was raised Jewish, she went to Hebrew school, and to the University of Judaism, which is now American Jewish University. She still identifies as Jewish, and she also identifies and is widely respected as a modern-day witch. One way to define a witch is as someone who works with the elements of the natural world, including our human nature, to generate more possibilities. Somebody who works with the natural world, including our human nature, to generate more possibilities. They do this with ritual and magic, which might be different than what you're picturing when I say that. I'm going to talk more about that next Sunday. That's the kind of witch Starhawk is. She has a lot to say about living in these times where we have so much fear and uncertainty. One thing she points out is you can't change a system. We can't change a system if we keep thinking in the same way the system thinks. Last Sunday, I preached about generational trauma. I talked about the way unhealed trauma is handed down from one generation to the next without anybody ever realizing it most of the time. And how so much of what looks like culture in the U.S. is a legacy of violence and unhealed trauma that have become just almost self-perpetuating. So one of our most important tasks in this time is learning about that, is learning to see that in ourselves and in others and in our culture and working to heal it wherever we can. And another important mission is to embody that which we want to see. When we are faced with unjust systems and events, we have to say no sometimes, right? Sometimes we have to very firmly say no with our words and actions. We have to say no to celebrating brutal colonizers with statues of men like Juan de Oñate. We have to say no to romanticizing this country's horrific history. Another way we say no is by acknowledging the atrocities that were taking place whenever we speak of that time, because it's weird to gloss over that level of violence, right? It was such a punk, like such a huge characteristic of that time. It was going on everywhere. And if we ignore it, it normalizes it. So we have to say no to that. And no to anti-Semitism. And no to other scapegoating and oppression. We have to say no sometimes. But Starhawk points out our movements are strongest when they embody a yes. 
we say yes to embracing each other's complexity. Yes to diversity. Yes to freeing ourselves from the structures of oppression within. Yes to caring community. Yes to right relationship and to the valuable hard work that entails sometimes. Yes to healing. Yes to our relationship with this earth. And yes to speaking the truth. I want to invite Jan Harper to come up with some special words to introduce our offering this morning. Good morning. I'm here on behalf of the Radical Generosity Committee. We are so fortunate to be a part of a church that has a rich history of striving for a culture of progress. Our forefathers and mothers, the Puritans, certainly had clay feet, as we all have clay feet, but they built Harvard in order to educate their ministers. A majority of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were Unitarians. And if the Revolutionary War had been won by the British, those brave signers very probably would have been hanged for treason. We are the church of Horace Mann, who was instrumental in expanding education so that children from all walks of life could go to school. And thus, we have public education. We are the church of Dorothea Dix, who visited prisons and found women chained to walls without clothes in cold, dark spaces. The justification for this treatment was that they were insane and could not feel the cold. Dorothea worked to, co to correct this horrible treatment, and the reform led to hospitals for the mentally ill. We are the church of Dr. William Ellery Channing, who first opined, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. This is the quote that Thoreau, Gandhi, and Martin Luther King made famous. Unitarians from many churches marched in the struggle for civil rights. In our own church, Members worked for open housing, open housing in Albuquerque long before anyone heard of the Eighth Principle. Led by Ron Frederick, our church was the first organization in Albuquerque to have organized recycling. Unitarian Universalist churches led the movement to open society to gay persons by declaring we are a welcoming congregation. Today, we stand up for inclusion, and we are blessed in this congregation to be able to worship with people of all genders and all orientations. We are a church that stands on the side of love, and we believe in taking action to make progress in the evolution of society. We not only believe in eradicating ra racism, we are doing something about it. Hence, we have adopted the eight 
the eighth principle as a start. In building this sanctuary, all members were able to have input as to what kind of building we would create. Over and over, members voiced that we want a green building to limit the carbon put into the air, even if it costs more. And today, we have a platinum level certified green building. We are this precious church that carries on the traditions of Horace Mann and Dorothea Dix, our forefathers and mothers in the Unitarian societies and in this church gave time, talents, education, and money that we may share in this journey of human progress. It is our turn to bridge, build a bridge to the future. A pledge is an important part of our covenant to support each other. We are this beloved community known as First Unitarian Church of Albuquerque. We need our time, our talents, and our money to keep the lights on and to pay our wonderful staff that we are so blessed to have. A pledge is not to be given on a whim, but after serious thought. Please be a part of gratitude and action when you consider your pledge and we will all build a bridge to the future. Now we are going to take the offering and if you've already filled out your pledge card and want to drop it in, fine. But this offering is really a form of discipline. We give to the less fortunate in the change for the future and perhaps you're really moved by the service and just want to contribute today. This is your opportunity. You can hear the words to this chorus. They'll repeat it several times. If you feel like singing, you should.
witchy people of all genders, too. <laughs> I love that song. Thank you for playing it, Lydia. <laughs> thank you, ushers. Thank you, congregation, for your generosity. May these gifts be for blessing in and beyond our congregation. Kristen, you've got something fun to share. I do. I do. We are hosting a multi-generational celebration for our neighbors and ourselves on Halloween, which is Tuesday, October 31st. Visit the table in the social hall. You cannot miss it, because it's got a great big jack-o'-lantern on it. And sign up to bring fixings for tacos, Taco Tuesday, or to hand out candy to trick-or-treaters. This will be a great opportunity to open our campus to our community. All cash donations will go to the Adult Citizenship Test Fund. And that adult citizenship test fund, adult citizenship test fund, I've spoken almost all the words I'm going to speak for the next five hours. <laughs> that fund is part of our ESL program that Connie Malecki led for so long. Um, and so I know she would be so honored if we had a great turnout and raise a lot of money for that important fund, which helps people pay the high fee for a citizenship test. Let's see, a couple other things. Um, I would like to give you an update about our pledge campaign. As you heard last week and just now from Jan, we are right in the middle of our annual pledge drive. And a pledge is just when you say what you think you'll give next year. It's not turning any money in right now. So um, as of Thursday, which was just five days in, we had already raised $88,608 in pledges. So off to a nice start, thank you. I say it every year, and I really, really mean it. Every single one matters. They really have to add up together for us to make this place work. And it's what we make it, because we're not getting money from some headquarters somewhere else, right? <laughs> this place is, is who we are, and it's what we do. Um, and on that same note, I want to lift up our children's program, which is still in need of some volunteers. We actually didn't have a program for children between our two services today, because we just didn't have anyone sign up. So if you are craving multi-generational connection in your life and you want to be a special person in a kid's life, I strongly encourage you to talk with Mia. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I've heard people, um, and I've also sometimes felt this way, like, am I a fun enough person for kids, right? Like, am I a kid person, right? <laughs> Mia told me a great story the other day. She was reminding someone, like, well, what kind of child were you? Like, were you a more serious kid? Well, yeah. Well, Kids need people who are like them. There are kids like all of us, and so consider, consider making that connection. All right, let's see. Last week, I introduced a whole bunch of new members, and I missed one. Jeanette Salazar, are you in here this morning? She's volunteering. Oh, what a great new member. <laughs> 
If you see Jeanette Salazar in the kitchen, you tell her welcome and what a great person she is to volunteer so quickly. I'm so glad she joined and I regretted uh, skipping her name. Um, we hope you'll stay for coffee hour. That's over by the kitchen where Jeanette is um, and that you'll visit and chat, maybe at a chat table. We have those every week if you need some more structured conversation. And we always like to provide a discussion prompt or a conversation prompt. So, boy, this service was chock full of information, right? There was some stuff you probably didn't know or just some new things, maybe even a new piece of music. What stood out to you? What are you taking away this morning? What will you do with that? There's your discussion prompt for today. All right, I invite everyone to rise in body or spirit. Let's just greet each other with a gesture of peace. Peace.
peace, friends, and may love bless you and keep you until we're gathered again. Blessed be. Thank you.